Good evening. Happy Halloween. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight. You're very welcome to the Forum for Philosophy. Thank you. Uh, as usual, apologies to those of you who've heard this spiel from me before. Um, but the Forum is a non-profit organisation. Uh, we believe that interesting academic research isn't just for academics and their students, that it should be available for everyone. Um, and so, to that end, we put on events once a week throughout the year, the academic year, and we invite philosophers and people from all sorts of other disciplines from outside of the university system as well to talk about ideas from science, politics, the arts, and the spooky tonight. Um, and uh, the reason we're able to do this is because very kind people like yourselves donate to us to keep us going. Um, if you'd like to be one of those tremendous wonderful human beings, uh, you can find a link to our Just Giving page uh, from our website and all donations very gratefully received. Um, you'll also find a huge archive of podcasts from our previous events, there's years of them, so that will keep you busy on the cold winter nights coming up. Um, this is also being recorded for a podcast, so if you ask a question, just be aware that it will be put out there forevermore. And um, do please turn off the volume on your phones so as not to disturb our speakers and uh, the rest of the audience. But you are more than welcome to uh, tweet along if that's the sort of thing that you're into. We have a, our own hashtag, LSE Forum. And if you want to join the conversation there, you're more than welcome. Anyway, again, enough from me. Uh, thanks again for coming, as I say. Um, please join me in welcoming our fab panel for tonight. I love that we had a little spooky little jangle from somebody's ringtone there. What was it? No, I love it. You can't hear us. Will you wave at me if you can't hear us? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move the mic a bit closer because it's slightly demanding to project um, for <laughs> an hour and a half. But do just wave at us frantically if you can't hear. Um, so tonight we'll be joining hands and invoking spirits or else Stanley shooing them away with our with a robust dose of reason. Uh, this event is our Halloween special, um, but it's also timely in other ways, uh, in an age of uncertainty about the status of truth um, and disillusionment with conventional modes of political and social organization, perhaps we're seeing a resurgence of alternative modes of knowledge and being. And, and that, that is an important question for philosophy too, which so often presents itself as being founded on logic and rationality. But even the most rigorous of us must concede that the world can be a strange place, probably particularly on December the 12th, after we've had an election. Um, so how does philosophy contend with the mysterious and the inexplicable? That's gonna be one of our questions. Let me introduce you to our panel. Lauren Cassell is Professor of History of Science and Medicine. She works in early modern medicine and the occult sciences at the University of Cambridge. She's director of the Casebooks Project, which archives the work of early modern astrologers Simon Foreman and Richard Napier, who produced one of the largest surviving sets of medical records in history. She's the author of Medicine Magic, uh, in Elizabethan London, and also a historical consultant on a video game called Astrologaster, which you can all go look up 
immediately. Um, Richard Pettigrew is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol, uh, with particular interests in formal epistemology and the philosophy of mathematics, uh, probability, rationality, and logic, and also, interestingly, I think, philosophy of religion. He's the writer of Accuracy and the Laws of Credence, and more generally, he's also written about universities. Who are universities for? And Nisha Ramaya is a poet and lecturer in creative writing at Queen Mary University of London. She's published several pamphlets. Uh, her book, States of Body, Glorious, it's outside. You can go buy copies, and I think Nisha might be available to sign them too. Um, States of the Body Produced by Love is published by Ignota, and Ignota is a new press that publishes at the intersection of technology, myth-making, and magic, focusing on work that reimagines and re-enchants the world around us. Who doesn't need that right now? Um, okay, so I'm going to talk to our panellists. We're going to chat between ourselves too, and very shortly we'll open up to the floor. So do, have, do dazzle us with brilliant questions and fox us with your problems, um, which often happens at forum events. Um, so we'll turn over to you quite soon. Um, I'm going to pose an introductory question to each of our speakers. And Lauren, I wanted to start with you, because it makes sense to start with the history of the occult. And your research is deeply rational and scholarly. Um, so what is it about this early modern history of the occult that warrants the attention of a deeply rational and scholarly scholar? Right. Thank, thank you very much. My research has never before been called scholarly and rational <laughs> because it wasn't in doubt. Um, thank you. Um, so... Um, do you want me to, sir, I start by saying what the occult yeah, is? Yeah, that my, would be great. Right? So, I mean, my expertise is on um, the period roughly 1500 to 1700. You can't understand that period without knowing what happened before and what happened after. Um, so the conventional way to begin to define the occult is to go back to Aristotle, I won't spend very long with Aristotle, but um, for Aristotle, um, everything had properties. Form and matter had properties which were either manifest or hidden. And if you think about what we would call a magnet, the manifest properties of a magnet is it's, it, it's cold and um, dry, hard as well, um, but cold and dry are its qualities, but it has this power to draw metals towards it. That's a cult. You cannot see that. You can't identify the elemental qualities that go with that hidden power. So that's a very physical definition of the occult. And much of what I do when I study the occult is take the physics of the occult very seriously. Um, but it also meant other things, and it, and it accrued these different values over the centuries, and, and in some cases, one was more at play than the other. So the second way of understanding the, how the occult was defined is that it was uh, knowledge of how to uh, understand, knowledge of how to understand and, and manipulate these hidden powers. And so the, that knowledge um, was often represented as secret knowledge. And that's why when we think about the occult, we often think of it as this secret thing. Right, so the, the what it is the knowledge of and the way that that knowledge is communicated go together with this kind of witchy ethos occult thing that we're talking about today. And the third way that the occult is 
often understood is by critics of the occult who say something is occult, which means it's not rational. And this pairing of the, 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 the rational and the irrational is at the, at the heart of what we're trying to talk about today. So this pairing, these two sides of the same coin with the occult and the natural being related things, is something that has this huge history. And so I've always studied the occult because I am interested in the things that challenge us to under... To, our own sense that what we're dealing with and what we're living in is a, is a rational world. And so more particularly, um, I'm interested in looking at the occult from the point of view particularly of, of practitioners, that is people who mastered astrology, alchemy, and various forms of, of magic. And these are all hugely complicated traditions, um, some of which overlap at various times. But that, I think, is enough of a, a beginning of a, a definition. Yeah. And w when you're looking at these materials, which sound totally fantastic and fantastically interesting, do you, uh, what, why don't you give me a sense of what you are looking at? What, what is the evidence? What is the, what's the paper trail of these traditions? So they all have different paper trails. Um, and um, so, for instance... Um, astrology is this hugely long um, tradition, um, dates back before the, the ancient Greeks. They systematized it, and obviously it continues to the present day, and it's had various ruptures along the way. To study astrology, you often use manuals um, or almanacs um, or astronomical treatises. Astrology and astronomy are the, the same thing for much of this era. Astronomy is the observation and the, the, the mathematical knowledge of the movements of the heavens, and astrology is the understanding of their effects on Earth. So they are inseparable. Um, so you have the manuals, you have philosophical treatises that are um, scholarly. They're explaining the, how the astrology works. Um, but you also have almanacs, which individuals used or annotated. And then we have what I've spent the decade working on, these um, uh, practice notebooks, these case books of these astrologer uh, physicians, where you see them day by day, moment by moment, using um, astrological techniques to guide their patients in understanding what has caused their illnesses and uh, prescribing what they can do to help with them. Um, so astrology is really evident, right? It's, it's, you need to do your computations, and so it leaves this huge paper trail, which is lovely, um, if maddeningly messy. You can <laughs> Google Casebooks Project, and you can see there are these like, horrendous manuscripts that we've digitized. Um, but um, alchemy, by definition, is hidden. Right? It's, you're only supposed to learn it from a person. You're not supposed to write it down. And if you write it down, um, bad things will happen. But we have thousands of alchemical manuscripts and thousands of printed alchemical works, all of which say, I'm the first person to tell you how really to do this. And they're full of duplicity. When they say 40, they mean four. When they say the queen, they mean silver. So they're all coded in this way. So the, the, the writing is opposite, right? Astrology is, it, it says what it means, 
Alchemy does not say what it means. And some people practice both. Magic is a whole other mess. There are many different traditions of magic, but a lot of it is um, in the form of uh, prayers. Um, and, and here you have to take the, the writing as a physical act, right? So the, the, the textual and the practical cease to be... Um, things that are in, in contrast to each other. And by looking at the, the magical manuscripts, you are seeing people, more often than not, enacting a kind of magical practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally does. And it makes me wonder um, what, what questions you ask when you're looking at that material, because when I listen to you talk about it, it seems to me you're not looking back on that material as the, the remnant or the, the evidence of quaint folk tradition, superstitious people. You're looking at it because you believe that it, had, it served a purpose. Do you have a sense of what those purposes might have been? Yeah, I look at it as, a, as though it serves a purpose. I also sometimes, as do other historians of magic and the occult in all its forms, they also take the word of of the critics of the occult, because you, you do have to remember that not everything, not everyone was leaving some traces in the historical record. So through the critics or through court records where occasionally people are prosecuted, you can get at a kind of check on what you're finding in the, the lovely manuscripts, even if they're scruffy and horrible, they're still lovely in a certain way. So what I'm looking for is um, what people are doing kind of day by day, they're kind of everyday practices, and what I, I'm resisting answering what I'm looking for because what I'm not looking for, there's, a, there's a, an argument which says people in the past used magic because they couldn't control their lives. Um, so they didn't have insurance, um, which is a, a safety net. They didn't have antibiotics. Um, they didn't have a rational way of deciding what they were going to do next. We didn't have population as a, as a metric in this era. right? So um, that is what I am resisting. I refuse to say the people in the past were anxious, and therefore they consulted astrologers. I think that is extremely demeaning of those people, which is not to say that it's not possible that they were anxious, mm -hmm. um, but that they did things that were really rational, or our starting point has to be to presume that they were doing things that made perfect sense to them, and at the same time that they accepted just as we accept that it might not work, but we're going to try it. And so that there's a, there's a it's, it's, it's almost like I have little rules for myself, which I've never thought to write down, about how it is that I allow myself to, to try to understand what it is that I'm looking at in these practitioners and their clients in, in the past. It's, it's got to be taking the plausibility and, and the credibility of these activities um, and it, that's a starting point and, and appreciating that it's a really different world back then but there are moments of familiarity and how you play with those things. So that's why I've, I've allowed a lot of play in the research. Yeah. Um, you know, we've not just done the video game but we've made videos and we've done... You know, little animated films. We've done all sorts of things to try to tease out the, 
the tensions between what is it. Yeah. That, that t- familiarity is a very interesting term because, so I, forgive me for prodding further, but just because your research just sounds like, I just imagine you in turning dusty pages of astrological diagrams and you know breaking seals and then plumes of smoke, that sort of thing. Don't disillusion me of that, what I'm imagining. But of, of that spectrum of things that might be familiar and things that must seem utterly mystifying, can you give us a sense of what you're encountering? What's been familiar and what's been utterly mystifying? I don't know. So I'm so close to it now. I mean, the... Where it, where you get the the familiarity is, or where I I find it most difficult to resist the distance I wish to impose, is um, there's a lot of emotion in the records, that I mean the, these are the astrological records that I'm I'm talking about. Um, there's a huge amount of emotion in in these records. There are. Um, we were. I was looking at a case with some students yesterday of a woman whose husband was was beating her. He was trampling on her chest, and you read through this, and um, it's very hard not to just see how horrible. You know that the, and they're not written out as full narratives. These are in the moment, so they're often list-like: black, blue, chest, belly, legs. I mean, it's almost poetic, and right. We've played with the um, the. You can take just phrases from these, and you have a whole person's. Aren't there sort of writerly games? Tell the a whole person's story in one sentence. We have real people's whole stories in one one sentence or one series of phrases in these records. The 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 most alienating moments, actually, I have had have been looking at at um, manuscripts of ritual magic, where magic. You could use magic to heal, and you could use magic to harm. And you do see people who say, I tried to kill him with this recipe. Right? And we, however remote we consider these, these texts, um, that watching somebody on a page express a, um, a, a wish to kill somebody with a set of words and procedures makes you stop, right? And, and that's where, I mean, when I, <laughs> I, I, I had a series of, of ritual magic texts, they're, they're, I mean, there's a, a modern appetite for these. They're reprinted. You can, I mean, they're in the British Library, but you can also, um, you know, order up from Amazon um, various um, texts of, of ritual magic. Um, and there was a point when I um, had to remove them to the, the room furthest from my bedroom in my house. Really? Um, and I knew that didn't make any sense, but these are scary, horrible texts. And so there I was kind of not quite sure how I felt about them. You know, I, I felt bad about having... I felt they were dangerous. I still feel they're dangerous. Because it's within them is the possibility of using your will to harm another person. I don't mind the healing parts. Mm-hmm. Um, th- it's not the powers that I mind, it's the, the intent that mm. I haven't thought about this very much before, but I did know that I'd moved them away. Yeah, that's so so interesting and so intelligent, I think, as well. Thank you so much. Uh, Nisha and, and Richard, I wondered if you wanted to, to comment on what Lauren, the fascinating things that Lawrence has been telling us. Um, I, I, 
One thing I was going to ask is, um, and it's, this came up in what you were saying, and it came up when I was sort of reading about this and trying to figure out myself what the occult was and esotericism and, and all these um, things and, and trying to kind of get a, a handle on it, that they look very continuous with science, with what we kind of look back. So I was wondering, is this term, the occult, used essentially by people outside as a critique of practices that are now thought, or, or were at the time it was used, thought to not be rational or not? You know, because the sort of things that you're talking about, is, like you, as you were saying, was, I mean, it sounds like people just doing their best with the evidence available to them, with the theories that they had best at their disposal to do the best job at kind of controlling bits of the world, figuring out bits of the world, changing it. So was there, were, I suppose my question is, was there really a distinction at the time people were doing these things between someone who thought of themselves as pursuing something more like science and someone doing something else, or was this, is this more kind of done in retrospect? No, I, well, I, I mean, in both. Right. Um, so the, um, uh, the different, I'm trying to work out which, so um, there are always people who consider themselves well, not always, but in, in medieval and early modern Europe, there are people who consider themselves occult philosophers of, of a certain sort, which means they're natural philosophers, but they have a particular knowledge of the hidden workings of nature. These people are not necessarily astrologers, alchemists, or magicians. Those are very specific traditions. You can understand the physics without invoking the powers, though astrology is a little bit more like understanding than in invoking. Um, but um, as much as there are occult philosophers, there are people who are theologians usually who are interested in, in drawing the lines between what is natural, what is unnatural. Unnatural is the area between the natural and the supernatural that is inhabited by demons, good demons and bad demons. And what the theologians are interested in is working out where the natural stops and the, the unnatural starts and where the unnatural stops and the supernatural starts. Because if you find yourself traversing on the part that means you're in discourse with demons, you are doing something theologically bad, even if you think those demons are angels. And there are people who did that. They had conversations with angels, and they often had conversations accidentally or deliberately with demons. And so the, these theologians, who are often called demonologists, they're drawing the lines between what is natural, unnatural, and supernatural, and they're saying, they're labeling the people in a bad way. It's that, that othering term you are a cult or you are superstitious. So it goes both ways. And then in the, the 17th century in particular, experimental philosophy begins to interrogate the hidden workings of nature. And this is hugely important in the development of, of science, what we call the scientific revolution, with always scare quotes around it. Um, and there they push the, the, the line as far into the supernatural as they can. So they naturalize everything. They naturalize spirits. They write natural histories of, of spirits. They interrogate uh, or torture the hidden workings of nature. And so they are 
very close to scientists. We don't have scientists yet, but they're experimental philosophers who, you know, I mean, gravity, mm-hmm. Newton's great study of gravity. Gravity is action at a distance. What is action at a distance? It's what the magnet is doing. It is a cult. Mm-hmm. But that, without Newton, we don't have science. Yeah. can't believe I just said that's that. A, but no, that's a great, <laughs> a great persuasive example. Nisha, did you want to respond? Yeah. yeah, well, I just had, I mean, I could think I could ask so many questions. Um, your research sounds fascinating. I was thinking about um, what you were saying about, like, everyday um, practices, and I was wondering maybe if you could uh, talk about the who had access to some of the to occult knowledges and powers and practices, and if there because I for some of these um, practices you would need to be literate for one, I, and where the line might be between folk practices where you might not need to be literate, and some of these occult practices where you might or not, might need to be taught or initiated. Um, yeah. something like social history. Yeah, so who has access to them? So one of the things that happens in the the centuries that I study is that um, uh, natural knowledge, for for lack of a a better term, um, becomes um, uh, articulated and debated by a much wider community. Um, And part of those debates are about where does this knowledge um, come from? Does it come from experience or does it come from books? And if it comes from books, are these the books from ancient Greece that have been passed down and corrupted along the way? Or is it, um, for instance, the, the, is the best healing knowledge from the ancient doctors or is it from the wise woman around the corner? And so the conversation opens up in, and and the, exper- the experiment is actually a recipe, like recipes, whether they're written down or communicated otherwise, become a kind of centerpiece of how you know something. Mm. You, you test it, mm. or you make it, and you, you do it. Um, and so um, there's a way that my, question, my answer to your question has just um, brought the old women into the conversation while denigrating them. And actually, part of what's um, interesting is while looking at all of these sources, which are the only sources we have, you're always looking for the voices that are missing. Um, uh, and, and you're always allowing for the, the fact that there are people who um, uh, are in the background, whether it, it's in the household you have um, family members. This is often where you find women's influence, um, but it's not explicitly written down, um, or at least not by those women. And we do have some, some literate women. The literate women are elite women, so then you end up with, with some other issues. So it's always an attempt, my research is always an attempt to bring other voices in. Um, but you often have to do it tangentially and recognize that the value of what they knew was itself being questioned um, throughout the period. That's so interesting. Thank you. Richard, can I, can I draw you in? Sure. Um, how, how confident are philosophers, or is philosophy, of the distinctions between the rational, ir- the irrational and the non-rational? 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose as, as confident as philosophers are, I mean, ind- individually, philosophers are overconfident usually. <laughs> but um, but as a as a discipline, certainly split. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. So there's there's this sort of question about what exactly rationality is. Sort of what 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 sort of thing would. Um, or what sort of standards do you hold it to? And then the second thing is the kind of substantive questions. In, and then once you've set those standards, what in particular meets those sort of standards? So on the, the question about what the standards should even be, there's a sort of, well, just to illustrate one of the uh, distinctions, which I think comes in very much when it comes to beliefs in the occult or, 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 or religious beliefs or beliefs about science or beliefs in your daily life, is a difference um, between sort of believing just as much as the evidence allows you and no more versus sort of um, just trying to get at the truth. Now, you might think, well, look, those two things are sort of, surely they've got to go hand in hand because the thing that, um, uh, the way of believing that will get you as close to the truth as you can is going to be essentially just, you know, matching up with the evidence or, or believing in line with the evidence and no further than that. But there's this sort of famous debate back in the 19th century between... Um, W.K. Clifford, K. Clifford and, and William James, um, uh, about in what circumstances could that actually that the the the, the um, match between those two things actually break down? And they're particularly interested in mystical belief or, or religious belief at that in that context, because James's point is you could never get to a religious belief. According to James, he thinks that you're in other philosophers are going to deny this particular claim, but he thinks you'll never be able to get to a religious belief, or perhaps in our context, a belief in the occult, if all you can do is pay attention to the evidence, if that's the only thing. If you can never kind of take a leap beyond what the evidence gives you, you can never come to some sort of um, uh, belief uh, in a religious um, proposition. And that's problematic for James because he thinks, look, these things are possibly true. There could be, my God, there could be this sort of uh, mechanism in the hidden mechanism in the occult. And if it's the case that it's just not permissible for me ever to believe beyond my evidence, then that's a truth that I've got to miss out on. And he thinks that's not really acceptable. He thinks you can't really have an account of rationality where there's certain things that could be true, but rationality couldn't. You could never possibly get to a situation where... Um, you could come to, to believe it. So that's just um, one sort of example um, of a case where even what the standard of rationality is, is, is it can be different. On the one hand, is it that you, um, rationality just says that you should believe only in line with your evidence, or should you also be able to sort of take leaps of faith in some sense and that still be okay? James talks about them in terms of kind of taking epistemic risks or kind of where epistemic here just means kind of um, your knowledge. Um, uh, so taking risks in your beliefs that, that, that may be true, but, you know, you're, you're going beyond your evidence. That's why it's a risky sort of enterprise. So I think there's that sort of thing. And then there's a whole, I mean, particularly since we're at the LSE, where Karl Popper was sort of in, in the philosophy department, um, there's, there's also this debate then within, um, once you've got your standard of rationality in place, um, asking uh, in particular what principles um, of, of kind of good reasoning are there that allow us to match up with rationality. And so usually one thing that we standardly do is we kind of take a body of evidence from the past that we've, um, that we've observed and we kind of 
extrapolate on the basis of that to the future. So why do I think the sun's going to rise tomorrow? Well, it's risen all these other times in the past. And, and I mean, famously, the reason I bring up Popper is that famously kind of um, him and maybe two other people out in the world have thought that that's, that's not rational, that's a non-rational way of um, forming beliefs. So there's that sort of debate as well. I mean, in philosophy, of course, you're going to find um, debates um, on just about every topic. So the nature of rationality is definitely one that's... Um, where there's some controversy. But I think another place where there's controversy is kind of what we're really trying to use the concept of rationality for. Yeah. Um, because there's a kind of a, a very good and reasonable critique of the concept that essentially it's been a sort of um, imperialist um, strategy or a strategy of oppression to silence certain voices or to, um, to sort of mark off one half of the world as not worth listening to, or not one half of the world, or just one mm. group of people in your society is not worth listening to, the irrational people. So it's kind of used as a stick to, to beat people with. So I think, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, my own research is kind of in rationality, and so I sort of want to be able to still use the concept, but in a way that doesn't have that. So then the question is, so what is this other notion of rationality out there that isn't just a sort of... Um, a, a tool of oppression. And I think the best way to think about it, and I think it comes back very much to what Lauren was talking about, is that the best way to see rationality is just, what it means for someone to be rational is just, are they doing the best they can do from their own internal standpoint at getting at the thing that they want to get at? So if it's believing, then you want to get at truth. So are you doing the best thing from your own point of view? And that's why, you know, this, this point about you, we mustn't look back on, you know, figures in the sort of 15th, 16th, 17th century and think, well, look, we believe all these things that from our current point of view just look ridiculous. You know, they thought there were these strange forces in the stars that were drawing all the kind of inert matter on the earth towards them or something. Yeah, it does look sort of ridiculous when um, looked back on from our point of view. Um, but, of course, from their point of view, they were doing the best they could within the um, limits that they had to, yeah. to get at it. So I think there is this notion of rationality that doesn't require you to sort of um, to use it just as this, um, this critique tool. And you might still think, why are we using this concept to judge people with? Well, in a way, I think there's quite a good answer to that. The answer is the reason we think about this is kind of an engineering project. You're trying to make yourself the best belief-forming thing that you can be. So when we, discuss, when we sort of study rationality, we're trying to kind of engineer our own minds, our own brains, or our ways of thinking, so that they're going to end up giving us these kind of most... Um, so it's not really uh, a, a, a concept, I would say, that we use to sort of judge other people and sort of pick on other people and put them into institutions or to, um, or to, uh, to criticise them or to silence them, but rather a concept we can use to improve ourselves in this thing mm. that we're trying to do, if, um, trying to get true beliefs. Yeah, I was actually, I was going to ask you almost exactly that, how inconvenient that you got to it. <laughs> Obviously some psychic <laughs> message came to you. Um, but just that this continue, there is a way in which that kind of continuing belief in the occult could in, in one way be taken as the, the mark of the failure of a philosophical project, mm. right? And or uh, and one that endangers a philosophical project, or you can think of it as a kind of way in which it punctures the confidence of philosophy in in improving ways. And it, it seems to me you're, you're suggesting the latter. But I wonder what kind of evidence it would take to be able to to persuade a philosopher to believe in the occult. What is the the standard of evidence? I mean. <laughs> 
like something that goes bump in the night and leaves a message on Descartes' blackboard. You know, what, I mean, what is it? Well, so there's, uh, there's some interesting arguments here about once you've got yourself to thinking so... So, so I suppose maybe the thing to say is what would count as a, a standard of evidence for someone depends on the beliefs they come to it with. So Hume makes this point when he's talking about miracles and sort of why you would, what you'd have to see, what you'd have to experience in the world in order to come to believe in God. Well, if you're really strongly convinced that there's no God, actually it would just, I mean, it may even be impossible because just everything you could possibly see, the likelihood of it happening because God did it, it's just so much less than the likelihood of it happening just due to some unseen but entirely natural process. And so I think there's, you could be in a position where you're sort of reasonable, and I suppose this is what people mean by being open-minded, is that you're, you're sort of making it yourself open to the possibility of evidence. But I think there's this, and there's something that kind of comes up in my research again and again and again, that I'm very against the idea that there's some sort of just standard of evidential um, support that a bit of evidence can give to something so that for every one of us, if we saw the same bit of evidence, we'd end up with the same beliefs. We come at evidence, we come at the world, we come to experience the world just laden up with beliefs. And, um, and those beliefs determine how we take bits, bodies of evidence. So someone who's kind of reasonably inclined towards religious beliefs or something, of course, is going to take a piece of evidence that looks a bit outside the standard scientific kind of theories as being something that shifts them quite a bit towards believing in yeah. whatever religion uh, yeah. or the mysterious forces. If they're like just a fully confirmed scientist then, uh, you know, scientist in the sense of um, scientism and in the sense of entirely materialist and naturalist, then it's going to take just perhaps it's impossible to ever get to a yeah. point of evidence. That I, I, I take that to mean that you can't peer review a ghost <laughs> and that may well be the case. But I, can I, these are the most fiendish questions ever. There's obviously some devil in me, but I want to ask you also the inverse because, so the opposite of how do you persuade, um, how, do you, how, does some, how does a ghost persuade a philosopher that they exist is how does a philosopher persuade a ghost that they don't exist. So how does a philosopher go about <laughs> how does a philosopher go about dissuading someone of occult belief? What's the standard of evidence there? Yeah, good. I mean, how does a philosopher end up persuading anybody of, um, uh, 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 of anything occult or, or otherwise? Um, I mean, I think that there's one thing you could say because the sort of evidence, so I, I actually, I had an experience when I was a child. I was, I had a, I was at a sleepover at a friend's house. And oh, I love these stories. Yeah, well, the, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, given the topic, I had something like this. I mean, it still <laughs> freaks me out, this experience. So, staying at this friend's house, and we were sort of, you know, we'd meant to have gone to bed, but we were sort of up chatting. And we knew that only his mum was in the house. His dad um, was away somewhere. We knew that. And we, yet we saw two in the shadow kind of of the light cast by the bathroom light two people go past towards the bathroom but there was nobody else we knew that for sure there's nobody else well, in that big house only, um, and it's still sort of um, sort of I find it very strange there was, I wasn't I wasn't at that time anyway inclined towards believing in ghosts I'm not now in any way inclined towards believing in ghosts but I still can't fit that experience in we both saw it so it wasn't like you know this was a mass hallucination but it certainly wasn't just some sort of bizarre play of the light just on me it was just anyway so how do you persuade someone I, get, I mean 
so how did I persuade myself or, or what have you <laughs> not to sort of believe in ghosts on the basis of that? I mean, one thing is kind of unifying power. I think one thing, and you might wonder why we're so drawn to theories that have great unifying power, but suppose we are, and, we, and certainly the way science goes, or at least the way science has gone in the 20th, 21st century, is to sort of towards grand unified theories of everything that you can... Um, that there is not just in our kind of local little bit of the universe, but actually across the entire vast expanse of the universe. It just turns out that's not going to fit in. It's, it's, it's got to be a blip. There's no unifying theory that both um, accounts for everything else I've experienced, everything else I've read, and everything else I've learned from people and so on, but that also fits this experience into it as anything other than just a mistake. There's, no, there's just no real room for it. And I suppose the question is, well, sure, there's room for it. It's just, that was just a ghost. And, you know, you saw it, and they exist, and, and, and that, that's, that's it. Why not just um, think that? But as well as this unifying power, we also have this kind of, um, you know, this Occam's razor, this sort of don't posit things, don't believe in things beyond what you absolutely need to. And that would be the standard way, I guess, for philosophers to convince someone that uh, something like a ghost didn't exist, that... Um, or to persuade the ghost that it didn't exist, and it goes on a puff of smoke. Um, that you just, it, it's a large extra thing to, to add into your kind of, um, you know, your inventory of the world. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a big one. It's not just, um, you know, it's like adding an extra fundamental particle or an extra force in the universe or something to put in ghosts. Um, and so it's got to really have a lot of extra. Yeah. Power, scientific power, predictive power, explanatory power, before it can really, you know, earn its keep in our scientific theories. And it just doesn't. You know, one experience when I was 11 years old, um, it's not really enough for me. And of course, all you know, friend, everyone knows yeah. people who also claim they've seen ghosts as well. So, you know, uh, I'm sure there's going to be. Gosh, that was that was that. a good answer. Everybody tweet Richard your ghost stories. Do Lauren and, and, and Nisha have responses? You do. Uh, well, yeah, I had a question. Um, I I really I appreciate what you were saying about um, the what happens when you try to kind of um, define what's irrational and what's rational in these categories and how they can be used. Um, um, they have been used um, for kind of. In, in terms of imperialism and colonialism, and and I um, and and to suppress different forms of knowledge, um, and I was, and I think you're very sympathetic to these different ways mm. of thinking, um, but I also was thinking about the the visual metaphors and and ways that you're describing um, the experiences in terms of seeing mm. um, seeing a ghost. So that was your experience. It was, um, and there's this idea um, of seeing as believing, and um, to know it, you have to be able to, like, you get uh, the, the written message, or, you know, this kind of, like, the emphasis on the visual in, which I think is a, something to do with European and Christian cultures, especially. And, like, in my own kind of research, I've been thinking lots about, um, so uh, one of the Sanskrit words for, Revelation. So, revelation is in English. It's that which has been seen or revealed. It's a visual. Um, in Sanskrit, it's shruti, which is that which has been heard. And so, I was just wondering, like, if you could speak to, diff like, ways of understanding that aren't about seeing. Yeah, I mean, I so I think there's. So no, I suppose there's. Um, so I suppose the the things that, say, a philosopher or um, or, might say. 
about seeing, they might also say about hearing, given that the um, that they're both sort of sensory experiences, though, and I would also sort of say about touch and smell and 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 taste as as well. So they think sensory sort of things. I mean, often not for good reasons, but philosophers are kind of just bound up um, together. So sort of philosophers in the kind of analytic tradition are sort of bound up together. Um, but one sort of thing that, as you were saying, either hearing or kind of revelation, I think that is another sort of um, thing which is quite different and has, and has got quite a lot of attention from, um, or is starting to get quite a lot of attention recently, is, is kind of experiences that are not any, from any of the senses, but mm. somehow seem to come mm. from inside, yeah. um, which is, I, I don't know if that was exactly what you're meaning by revelation, but that's, sometimes people talk about revelations as not, not being sort of a vision necessarily or, or hearing um, a voice of um, a religious voice, but sort of some sort of something that comes inside. And I think that's another, that's a really interesting way of um, acquiring knowledge, which has, um, the, the, the area that's come from, interestingly, in philosophy recently is through hallucinogenics particularly. So actually not sort of, I mean, there, there is actually a whole body of work and kind of uh, religious um, revelation, but there is this question about what because people often talk coming out of hallucinogenic states of um, of kind of revelations of learning things that they just didn't think they could uh, learn before. And it's interesting. One really interesting thing I found about that is they also don't feel that the knowledge. And this comes back to your thing about um, oppressing or, or, or silencing different forms of knowledge. Is the knowledge isn't something they feel they can express mm. fully, at least in words. So you sort of say, well, what's this thing that you learned? And they say, some well, I can roughly sort of gesture at it by saying it's some sort of realization that there's a certain oneness or unity about the universe and that things are connected or that and also I've kind of realized my own insignificance in it and that you know I'm kind of just a part of it but they say I mean I'm saying all these things but basically they don't come close to what I really experience and I'm guessing that's kind of what some of revelation is like as well um but yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting work to do about what sort of evidence that gives us. Mm. And is it, do we have such a thing as knowledge that can't be expressed, that you could never possibly express in words? You could only ever get it by having the experience. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Lauren, did you have a next? Of course I have questions. I was really interested in... Well, there's a, there was, it seemed to me a lot of um, slippage in what you were saying between the occult the irrational and the religious and rather than ask you to define all of these terms I I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the word belief so I don't think I use I like I, it, mm. one of my words I don't use partly because the best teacher I ever had was an anthropologist who said only the believer believes the non-believer believes only the non-believer believes the believer believes, <laughs> right? Which it's, it's a way of saying that somebody who believes doesn't know. Mm. We know, and that person doesn't know. And so I always use the word no, and probably my, there's some subtlety lost to what I have to say because I use one word instead of two. And two words are usually better because they have different subtle these to their mm. meanings. But belief in your explanations was doing a huge amount of work. So can you say a bit more about that? So it's supposed to do a lot of work by not doing any work. But the, so the point is meant to be that 
belief is just an entirely neutral description of someone who... Or, I mean, people often say, actually, what any normal person would say is thinks. Philosophers have this thing about talking about such and such, believes it's going to rain tomorrow, such and such, believes that, you know, the election's going to be on the 12th of December. Everybody else, apart from a philosopher, would say, I think it's going to rain tomorrow, I think it's going to... So that's the sense. It's the sense that's sort of synonymous with the normal word, thinks. And it's meant to be entirely neutral because it doesn't tell you whether it's true or false. Some beliefs are true, some are false. It doesn't tell whether it's justified, some are justified. You know, I've got justified belief that um, gonna, the election's going to be 12th of December. I've got an unjustified belief that, you know, um, the monster Reagan Looney Party is going to win it or something like that. Um, so it's meant to be entirely neutral. And the reason I don't use knowledge is that's meant to be a really sort of substantial honorific. That's meant to be, you know, something's knowledge yeah. if it gets, it has all the great properties. The thing's got to be true, it's got to be super justified, it's got to be done and, you know, created. You've got to come by the, the knowledge in this really nice way. So I was trying to use belief just to, just as an entirely, yeah, neutral way. It just means that the person has a kind of, um, affirmative cognitive state towards the thing. Oh, they, they think it. They think it's true. That's what it means. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's the that's that, I mean, that. But that's a very bizarre idiolective um, philosopher's It's true. We've we've already got into the thorny business of language. So maybe we should turn to you, Nisha. You're you're a working poet. Why why would a poet be sympathetic to the idea of the occult? Um. So I was thinking. Um, well, first of all, so my, the, the, the publisher, Ignota, that um, Shahada already mentioned, um, so they published my book, and they, um, they, the first book that they published was called Spells, um, and it's an anthology of 21st century occult poetry. And they, I think they offer actually quite a good, or the editors, um, Rebecca Tomas and Sarah Shin, offer a, a kind of useful definition for starting to think about this, which is about um, people who are trying to use language in such a way um, that it might influence the universe. Um, and the, the, the influence they're thinking about is about um, both personal transformation but also social justice. And so I was thinking about, so the, and they talk about spell poems. Um, and I was thinking about this, this kind of phrase, spell poem. And so I tend to, um, as a poet and just geek, um, always go to the dictionary. Um, I'm still obsessed with definitions and etymologies, and um, so spells, like some of the, um, the kind of most basic definitions are just using the right words in the right order, and that is also um, a sort of a definition of poetry that I think Coleridge used to describe poetry. Um, so it's something about using words, the right words in the right order, um, but it's also to try and make something happen. Um, and then, so there's, there's some, I mean, this is a, an ongoing debate, does poetry make anything happen in the world? Um, and I, I mean, the levels on which it makes things happen, I think are really important to think about because it could be just on an individual level, it might just change your mood. Um, but I do also believe in sort of individual collective um, possibilities for what poetry can do. So, um, and also this isn't, so the anthology, the recent anthology might suggest it's like a, a recent turn, but it's not at all a recent turn. It's kind of harking back um, to these sort of 
age-old, I'm not a historian, these, I'm going to be very vague, these age-old notions of what the relationships are between poetry and myth and poets and visionaries and priests, people who conduct rituals and ceremonial spaces by, the, by means of language and create sacred spaces by means of language and help guide people through transformations. Um, and also, uh, if you haven't seen it, the William Blake exhibition at the Tate Britain is another kind of amazing example of a poet visionary. Um, so it's not at all a new thing. Um, I think it's it's being it's it's manifesting in new ways. And maybe when we're going to talk a bit later about how it's the kind of the occult in um, contemporary culture, um, I would say that I use the term occult very loosely and bringing in all sorts of different practices and traditions and um, I think that that is a reflection of how it's used at the moment, where people might be interested in um, seeing mantras and doing meditation, as well as um, lighting different kinds of herbs, as well as reading tarot, a spread of tarot. And there is something, I mean, there are positives and negatives about this, but there is something very kind of um, diverse, let's say, about the range of practices that people are using um, who when uh, think about the occult right now. Um, and yeah, I guess like with regards to my own practices, um, my research started off um, being I wanted to learn Sanskrit. Um, and when I, I decided I wanted to learn Sanskrit, I, have to, I, I wanted to um, think about what texts I could translate. And so I was reading lots and lots, and I knew I wanted to translate sacred texts, and also because those were some of the earliest texts in Sanskrit. And I... Um, I've always been drawn to goddesses. Um, I think it's just, it, it started off maybe as some sort of, maybe feminist idea about seeing a, a divine feminine, um, which wasn't necessarily around uh, in like growing up in Glasgow. <laughs> um, and my parents weren't religious. Um, so yeah, I started looking into these goddesses and I found this group of, um, this is maybe where the sort of spooky and gory comes in because I found this group of tantric Hindu goddesses, although some of them exist also in Tantric Buddhist traditions, um, called the Mahavidyas, and they are the great wisdom goddesses, and they are some of the most bizarre um, goddesses you would ever see. So the the my the I write about all of them. Um, the one who's I'm most taken with is called Chinamasta, and she's actually a Hindu and Buddhist goddess. Um, but Chinamasta is um, she who cuts off her own head to feed her, herself and her loved ones. So in iconography, she's always shown with these three fountains of blood coming out of her neck. And so it's very gory. <laughs> but it's also it's, it's heavily symbolic and metaphorical, and it's all about love as self-sacrifice and giving yourself up um, to, to kind of feed and care for others. Um, so yeah, so I, I was translating these goddesses and I also then became really interested when I was looking at the goddesses um, about how they are worshipped and what sorts of ritual um, traditions um, are associated with them. And I was thinking about that in terms of poetic practices. So again, I, don't, I, I didn't really see there being kind of vast differences between ritual practices and poetic practices um, because often it would be sort of setting up rules um, or systems and thinking about how to um, process different kinds of information or experiences, um, how to structure thought. Um, and yeah, so, and, and poetry, I always think of poetry readings as being something like a ceremonial space um, <laughs> where, where you're, yeah, you're kind of 
well, I won't say more. Does, about what it. does that mean? We should encourage you to read. <laughs> that sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I usually stand, but I'll sit. If you, you, I mean, I think oh, that mic is on. Oh, okay. If you want to. Okay, thank you. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, I have a. Um, I've got a very a two minute. I think it's a two-minute poem, um, which um, kind of goes through some of my ideas about the connections between tantric ritual and poetic practices. So I can. Sure. Would you like the glass of water? You're okay. Oh, uh, a two-minute poem. <laughs> Need some libations. Thank you. <laughs> ritual steps for a tantric poetics. This is the way to north, the honey love of air. Poetry and myth lick your ears. This is the way to northeast, the drunk eyes of air fire, forgetting you slip into dialect. This is the way to east, the hurting hold of fire, your tongue becomes strange to you. This is the way to southeast, the sad smoke of fire water. Soak your loneliness in cold water. This is the way to south, the blood sacrifice of water. Dance on their backs as they copulate. This is the way to southwest, the inner heat of water, earth. Knowledge cauterizes. This is the way to west, the earth body of earth. Write the flash before subjectivity. This is the way to northwest, the three points of earth air. Consider geometrical process. This is the way to above, the safe crossing off above, etymology as your ladder. This is the way to below, the dead time off below, your fear, the words mean nothing. Come away from north. Assume the contemporary. You have access to more words than you are using. Come away from northeast. Try on as many voices as you like. Impressions imply remaking. Come away from east. Your bones, your blood vessels, your eyelashes. How astonishing. Astonishing. Come away from southeast. The confessional sounds you make in the bath. You are so much more than feeling. Come away from south. The obscure narratives you rely on start again with blood and iron. Come away from southwest. Your arms are scarred with procedure. You were wrong about sealed containers. Come away from west. Before essentialism smothers you, get out, get out, get out. Come away from northwest, the constraints you have reasoned yourself into. Stare at flowers until something happens. Come away from above, the warmth of academic contexts, unless you can sweat it out. Come away from below, extending words to the breaking. The charm has wound down. Thank you, yes. Thank you so much. It's a really lovely thing to, to have in the middle of one of our, our events. I wonder if I can pick up on the, the gory goddess mm. and the, the feminist strand that you, 
you started to draw out, and perhaps Lauren, you might have something to say to this, and Richard too, of course. But I, is, is it uh, is it a, a tr is it trite to to under, try to understand the occult in relationship to particular um, I don't know manifestations of feminist or or resistance to patriarchal logic is that I mean I think perhaps it's a cliche to talk about witchcraft in relationship to feminism but is there is there a historic relationship and and how do you understand it in the contemporary Nisha you go first <laughs> um well I mean I think that there are so many different ways to answer um one of the things I found um, striking when I was doing my research um, into the Tantric goddesses, um, I was so I rely completely upon a Sanskrit English dictionary, and I use one that was um, compiled by a 19th century lexicographer, Sir Monier, Monier Williams, and he, I sort of. I have a very intimate relationship with him now, um, and I, I got to know him really well through constantly referring to the dictionary. Um, and he, one of the interesting things about him, so he was a Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit at Oxford, and he came to that position not just because um, of his um, proficiency with Sanskrit, um, but also uh, because of his... Um, he was an evangelical Christian. And he says very explicitly in the uh, preface to the dictionary that it's been compiled to aid um, in the conversion um, of the natives of India. So it was a sort of an instrument for missionaries to use to, um, I guess, to translate Christian texts into Sanskrit. Um, and he, he's... One of the things about when I was kind of... I looked up just to see out of interest, like, when does he use the word occult in his uh, definitions? And... It was, it's always for tantric practices. Um, and so things like using mystical diagrams or things like using um, hand um, gestures. Um, and in terms of goddess worship as well. He was most appalled. He wasn't actually... He li quite liked lots of things about... Um, Indian culture and religious traditions, he really didn't like goddess worship. <laughs> he found that particularly abhorrent. Um, and I always find that really intriguing and interesting. Why, why, why was he so repulsed? He was, I got the feeling of he, he was repulsed. Um, so, and then also, I guess, the other thing I was uh, just going over um, uh, the book Caliban and the Witch um, by Silvia Vedarici, yeah. who's a Marxist feminist, and it's about, it's called, I think, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation. And one of the things, uh, it's, I feel very inadequate at summarizing it, but it, it talks about the kind of, um, the transition from, in Europe, from feudalism to capitalism, and it sort of makes these links between the ways in which land became um, enclosed and in terms of private property and also women's bodies. And so women's, women who previously had been doing all sorts of other kinds of work um, became necessary mainly for the production and reproduction of laborers, of workers. Um, and so this is a kind of, um, it wasn't important and it, in fact it was um, actively dangerous for women to have particular kinds of knowledge relating to their own bodies like herbal knowledge or knowledge about um, um, contraception or um, abortions um, and lots of other kinds of things and it, that was sort of completely counter to the aims and logics of capitalism um, and so and she kind of I mean I think historically there is maybe some some contention about about some of her facts but the narrative I think is is really 
is really um, persuasive and thinking about this, um, how kind of women became alienated from their own bodies um, and, and as, just as people became alienated from the land that they'd previously been um, mm. able to access and use. Yeah, I think it's a question about the gendering of the occult. So, so Richard and, and Lauren, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, so I'll talk about the gendering of the occult and then we'll go back yeah. to witchcraft, mm-hmm. if we may. So um, one of the ways that the occult is most clearly gendered is when it is um, talked about as, as superstition, as irrational. Um, and, and one of the things that um, I, I was very interested when Richard referred to half half the people might seem irrational, and I wondered if he was referring to women. And <laughs> I wasn't, but I can see. Because historically that is um, what, what you get, right, particularly with Enlightenment philosophers, to be very crass about it, that, that um, uh, reason is masculine and um, superstition is um, feminine. Uh, it, because women, because of their physiology, aren't, they're more subject to the, the powers of the imagination. Um, they're softer in literal mm-hmm. ways as well as figurative ways. Um, and um, so they are, by definition, more irrational. And, and there is a value judgment mm-hmm. here, right? Um, uh, that means they can't do certain things. Um, so th- this is one of the. Th- this is a nice kind of before and after story. So before the Enlightenment, um, women um, can be as rational as men. There's a, more of a spectrum. But what the Enlightenment does is it naturalizes the the human body so that women, by definition, are less rational, and men are by definition more rational. Um, and these are, this is one of these before and after stories. And witchcraft also lends itself to these various before and after stories. And here is where, um, in many ways, I mean, the, the real story is, is not that there were powerful witches and, and women lost that knowledge. It was taken away from them by men. Um, that's, we don't have a lot of historical evidence to demonstrate that. But what's really interesting is that around 1900, all sorts of scholarly people decided that that was the story. And so why did they decide that that was the story? And what power does that story have, which is then picked up by feminists through the 20th century who talk about the loss of female knowledge and the loss of female power um, in the name of, of feminism. And so part of the problem is that us killjoy historians come in and say, well, that, that's not true. Um, there's no evidence about that, but we're still feminists, yeah. uh, and we still think women are powerful, mm-hmm. just not in that narrative that you have told. Yeah. But that, perhaps that brings me to my next question, and I promise I will turn to the audience soon, is just that why, despite the evidence, and I know we've been questioning evidence, why despite the evidence would you believe in the occult? What, what, do, what, what do you get from it? Richard, perhaps you could have a, a go at that. Gosh, um, I mean I, I I suppose 
it's important to um, distinguish between cases where there was just no evidence one way or the other, where you were just, you know, there hadn't been a huge amount of um, evidence accumulated, and then, of course, essentially, you're, this is why I was um, asking Norton about the, 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 the sort of con continuity of what we think of as kind of scientific or medical sort of investigation. It looks like it was just, you know, people were, were dealing with a situation where there wasn't a kind of really seriously well-confirmed sort of theory that kind of, where a huge amount of evidence had been accumulated for it and it sort of covered everything and people could... In that case, it looks like you could you could believe it because um, you know for the reasons you might believe any of the other things, and in a way, it was, you were sort of believing certain things that look like the best scientific theory of the time to some extent. Why you would believe it, I think, in a in, an, in a period where at least believe it, believe in its efficacy, believe in the efficacy of some sort of hidden powers when there's a very well-supported theory about how those powers actually work that's sort of got a lot of them. Why you might believe it then? I mean, I think... I don't know. I don't think this is a particularly new or uh, original point, but there's a sense in which a lot of the kind of scientific image that we now have of the world, and particularly the sort of image that we're, if not at the end of science, we're kind of, we've, got, we've now got theories that cover just vastly more of the, the world than we might have done at previous time, one thing about that is people talk about it sort of disenchanting the world, and I think you talked about this um, sort of earlier on, that in a sense some beliefs in sort of hidden powers um, and hidden forces that govern some of the things around us is some sort of attempt to re-enchant the world, to sort of still to give it some mystery that people... I mean, I actually, I think this is... I always felt this is just a mistake, that people sort of think that the scientific images, that, or the images that science gives us of the world is somehow disenchanted, that mm. they somehow lack enchantment. It seems to me, looking at kind of scientific vision of the world, it looks m way more enchanted to me and way more interesting and wonderful and sort of awe-inspiring to me than, than any of actually the, 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 the um, sort of alternative theories that, that, that they overturned. I mean, some of the kind of current scientific theories just look totally remarkable to me. But I do suspect for, for some people who find, who don't find that, who don't find those theories um, sort of, you know, uh, wonder-inducing that um, you know, sort of turning to, to other sorts of and, or thinking that there are other hidden forces around that you could manipulate in various ways might be one way of going with it. Do you want to have a bat at that question? Or do you want I, to escape? I would be happy to, I mean I'll try to be brief which I mean I agree with, with all of that and I think that's a really nice way of accounting for for any given person's way of understanding what is going on with this question about enchantment, evidence, and the occult. Um, I have a kind of non-answer, but I actually think it's really important to pay attention to that, that one of the reasons why people find the occult appealing is not about the logic or lack of logic of it, but it's a social answer. And there are communities of people who share ideas, right? Ideas and practices that one signs up to. And so there are moments in history where people who are part of a, a, an occult group, which means both secret and having control of secret powers, um, that, that's something that one, one wants to do. And so you can't separate out the, the philosophical 
um, from the social because that, that's by definition setting yourself socially apart. Um, and it, in some cases, the, it's critics who label those people as a cult. But as with all things that critics posit, then if you embrace that category, you can, you can use it to your advantage. Um, so I think it, that's where this, this comes up against the issue with why there is so much questioning of evidence and of facts these days. Yeah. Um, because actually if you're part of a group of people who has a, a set of ideas that make sense to you, you are bolstered by each other. It's a, it's a social phenomenon. It's yeah. not about that one person's set of ideas because no one person just has a set of ideas. Yeah, mm. that's a great response. Shall I hand over to the audience? Oh, I can see so many questions. So we have a mic. Um, let's get... Um, ah, so the, uh, the jumper at the front, in the, the black and white jumper next to you, this black and white jumper there. So that question first, and then we'll get that question there, and then that question there. So first, you, you had your hand up, didn't you? Thank you. Hi, uh, thank you very much for the talk. I just Can want you to hold ask... the mic right up to your mouth? Oh, like this? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask more. You mentioned the social appeal of occult groups and why people would join for that aspect. I wondered if you could elaborate more on kind of the rituals of occults, because I feel like with rituals, you can kind of not believe in that particular ritual, but then still be committed to doing that particular practice right and correctly. So I was wondering if you could elaborate more on how that kind of relates to the social aspect of occult groups. Let's get the other two questions in as well. That one there. Hello, my name is Austin, Austin Hayes. I am a, Could you hold the mic right hello, up to your mouth? Hello. Hello, my name is Austin, Austin Hayes. I'm a, a postgrad from City ILS. And my question, um, yes, I, uh, so when we look at a belief in occultism, to be empathetic for momentous familiarities, this is comprised of the work uh, Richard and Lauren talked about, um, uh, Richard's uh, belief or uh, evidence for belief, and um, Lauren's work in occultism. And when we, we look to be empathetic for momentous familiarities uh, with those controls, we hope to be able to identify familiarities between physics and physical properties. And, and, and what evidence could we take from occultism? Or when, when we're trying to like try to see in between those those physics and physical properties. What's a what's a, maybe like an investigative way to go about peering into that? Okay, great. Thank you. So, a question about physics and physical properties, and the question there. We'll do our best to try and answer each of them, but I'm going to try and squeeze as many questions as possible. <coughs> okay, thank you. Um, I have a question about the God and uh, magic. To exactly twelve years ago, I was studying the UCL, <coughs> and then when the time for me to leave, I, I need to sort out the materials uh, to go to, uh, to be with me, to, with me. And actually, I'm from, from China, I work for, for the Chinese Communist Party, including some is a booklet from the samples. When I was visiting the samples, a booklet. <coughs> and then, yes, no, I'm, I'm living in a studio, a, two, a kitchen room and a bedroom. Then when I re, the 
when I'm sorting out the materials, I brought the materials I need to bring with me to the bedroom. I even ranked the order. But the moment I leave, I couldn't find the booklet, I mean, from the same place. I searched, searched everything about half an hour. Then I almost, almost gave, gave up. Then an idea came to me. I said that, oh, must, must be the God. Tell me, tell me something. Because for communists, it is impossible for me to, leave, to believe in God. Then I said, he must be telling me I'm here. So I said that, yes, my God. Yes, I said, my God, if you are here, let me see the booklet. Must be the other room. Then I go back to the other room. Actually, the booklet was there. Was exactly there. <laughs> and then after that, I mean, and I, I'm, I myself stayed there for about half an hour. I, don't, I didn't know what to say. And then even, after, even after that, I, I couldn't believe there's a God. I said that, okay, <laughs> there's a, li- a list of events. I said, every, every event is A or B. I said that if there's three, there's three events, every, every event is A. I believe there's a God. Actually, the three events, every, every time is A. So I, it puzzled me for 12 years. I don't know the answer. I asked the panel, please tell me if there's a God. Thank you. <laughs> No, thank you. That's just such a a brilliant question. Three questions. Um, You can take any of them. Um, The first one was about social rituals, wasn't it? Which I think is a really good question. The second one was about what can we take from the occult and the relationship between physics and physical. And the third... I think that is about the, in, the inexplicable and the, re, the re-enchantment of, of a, the forum of, for philosophy. But we'll, we'll do our best, sir. So, any takers? I mean, I think you could have a go at the, the, the social rituals, perhaps. That's perhaps a I could, but I, I'm going to have a go at the third one first. Just, Great. Just, <laughs> Brilliant. Just to say, is there, is there a God? Um, and, and, I mean, uh, so the... And again, I have a kind of non-answer. The testing of God, show me that you are here, has a long history, right? And that itself is contentious because faith is not testing God, right? And again, I I give you, I mean, I I have no religion. I was literally raised with no religion, but I, I study the Christian world. So I, by default, understand quite a bit of Christian theology. Um, and so that, that question of um, needing the evidence is pro- itself, for theologians, highly problematic. But you could probably go and find um, any number, if we, if we went back to the 17th century, any number of occult practitioners who, first of all, for them, by definition, there was a god, and the spirits were everywhere, and at the same time, they could show you those workings because that's what they were messing with in all of their activities. So it's not a real answer, but it's to say you're not alone. <laughs> 
and in your desire. You're also not alone in, in your tendency to lose things, but you're not alone in your desire to explain them um, in terms of uh, using them to test the, the, the divine workings in the natural world, which relates to the question, if, if I understood it correctly, about um, what does it mean to go through the motions, right, of rituals? Is that Was that the yeah. thrust of it? And... Um, Again, I, I think um, if we if we look at the way people behave as groups, not as individuals, and we have this kind of fixation on explaining action in terms of the individual because we're fixated on that as as the unit, I don't think individuals do anything. I think families, communities, friends, cohorts of all sorts that that is the the unit. We are social beings, and so. Um, it doesn't mean, so for an example from my work is that it's very important that I don't think that everybody who went and consulted the astrologer believed in astrology. They just went to the astrologer. And it's the same thing as saying every time you take an aspirin, are you fully taking on board? Are you interrogating the way that affects the analgesic properties on your body? No. You're just taking an aspirin. You're just going through the motions because you want the, the effects. And you might do a series of other things like have a nap, right? And we might consider one a ritual and the other not, but they're actually the same. Um, so, I, I, again, what, everything I'm saying is, is dispersing with the occult as a category, but that's because I do think the world is enchanted, exactly as Richard was saying. And I, I wish that we could hold on to that and keep the notion of science at bay. Any other takers for the questions? Oh, yeah. um, I was going to say the one about the, um, investigating the occult. Um, what sort of evidence we might have for it? Sorry. Uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, I think, in a way, I suppose this comes back, and I think actually this also relates to the question, not, not so much about ritual, but about the sort of social processes, this, this sort of point that what sort of evidence you think is going to be the right, or how you go about investigating a particular occult, or, or a particular claim within the occult of a particular hidden process. I think it's just going to be particular to that process, some, you know, some of them... Um, because in a lot of ways, a lot of occult processes, I mean, this already came up with something Lauren said, is our, our claims about action at a distance. And actually, you know, there are, there are things within the sort of completely traditional orthodox scientific firmament that are action at a distance, you know, Newtonian laws, but also even within um, at least certain interpretations within quantum mechanics, you have... Um, this thing that Einstein calls spooky action at a distance. I mean, his whole point about it, about this uh, a particular um, sort of experiment that he and um, his co-authors described was exactly to claim that quantum mechanics has this bizarre consequence that there must be this sort of particular um, thing he calls spooky action at a distance. And he thinks that's meant to be an objection to it. So I suppose what I was thinking was that in fact, a lot of the sorts of things that you might investigate in the occult, you would investigate in just exactly the same way as you would investigate any other sort of scientific claim. Because in a lot of ways, in, in type, they're not so different. I mean, sort of people who might believe in one may not believe in the others and so on. But the sort of claim they are, they're claims about the regularity of a particular um, uh, remedy at bringing about a particular effect. And we can, we can do those sorts of experiments reasonably um, straightforwardly. I mean, one thing, which hasn't come up actually so much, but um, something that 
that some philosophers, actually, again, I guess coming back to the Karl Popper stuff, um, worry about with certain sorts of, uh, which would include certain occult beliefs that invoke uh, personal agents like demons or angels or so on, is that there's a certain sense in which they're unfalsifiable, that you could never really do a test that would test them because the, the, the agency by which this thing is supposed to occur is through an intelligent being which makes certain decisions. And so if you went along to your um, magician and asked them to sort of uh, harm someone by, um, to harm one of your enemies, and they claimed they were going to do that by sort of, you know, by petitioning a, a demon to do some bad thing to them. If it didn't work, they could just say, oh, well, the demon decided not to cooperate this time, or you, had, you, you weren't in the demon's good books this time, or the demon didn't take the particular offering we put out. So there's a certain sense in which you could never kind of get a false test result for these sorts of, for certain sorts of beliefs, and that's a sort of, that's how some people want to carve up the kind of scientific versus non-scientific. So I think that's one worry to have about. Or should I take more questions? Yeah. Okay, let's take another very quick round. Wave at me if there are questions. So there's a question at the very back there, one here in the middle, and then the one there. I'm sorry if I haven't got to you. Yes, that's you. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, so I had a question about the senses and how they're used to, um, uh, could say, like, uh, perceive... Uh, proof of existence of things so would you say that there are certain senses that are more convincing in terms of uh, uh, just like perceiving whether things are actually there or not and if if so uh, what are the implications in terms of uh, determining uh, what is rational or irrational and uh, what is supernatural or or yeah whatever great <laughs> lovely good quick questions yes uh, my question is quite similar um, do you, does the panel think that uh, belief in the occult really depends on experience and whether people are able to uh, have what's called ESP, extrasensory perception, Great. which means, for example, if there's a ghost somewhere, some people can see it and some people can't. And if those people can't, then they won't have those experiences and therefore won't believe in the occult. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wondered uh, to Richard's question about kind of investigating the occult um, to what extent we might have radically different standards for investigating um, certain beliefs so for instance like the benefits of the welfare state um, versus uh, more occult like beliefs so potentially like how my consciousness relates to the consciousness of other beings um, and that both those different standards might coexist as kind of very different layers, uh, but existing at the same time. Great, thank you. Um, we have to have very quick answers, so perhaps um, you can pick a question if you would like to. Nisha, I feel like I want to encourage you to answer. Mm. Um, I like the question about ESP, and um, I was just thinking that uh, I, I've been reading lots of Ursula Le Guin lately, a sci-fi writer, and it, who kind of initially takes a sort of anthropological approach to her science fiction. Um, and, but one of the things that she is consistent throughout is that humans will evolve to be able to mind speak, um, so kind of telepathic communication. So that's something. So, um, and I find it really interesting and um, appealing as well. And I was thinking about attunement. So like, and actually this relates to the sound as well, just like a level of attunement and that some people 
are more sensitive than others to certain to different kinds of things, whether that's just like insects or or germs or like particular high pitched sounds or you know. And I do think I'm not I, I'm not particularly sceptic and I don't really rule anything out but I, I think that um, I don't know about ESP but I definitely believe in different levels of attunement to the surrounding world that's it. Great, thank you Lauren, Richard? I think I've said enough <laughs> they're great questions but I do feel I've said Rich, Richard? Oh, well, well that means, I think, I think that means that um, we've run out of time, but you can telepathically communicate your questions to our panellists and they will do their best to reciprocate. But will you be sensitive enough? That is the question. If you would like to um, commune with Nisha more, her book is actually outside and we strongly recommend um, that you go have a look at it and perhaps buy it. Um, and uh, Nisha, will you sign some of them? Will you be... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that would be lovely. And um, thank you so much for joining us. See you at the next one. Have a happy Halloween. <laughs>